0: Welcome back to The Director's Cut, a podcast by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're bringing you a panel discussion from the DGA Special Projects Committee's recent webinar event. A conversation with episodic television directors How Inspiration Fuels the Art of Directing. Last month, directors Michelle McLaren, David Nutter, Ken Whittingham, and Jessica Yu participated in a lively conversation moderated by DGA past president Paris Barclay, where they delved into who and what inspires them to continue topping themselves artistically on series such as The Morning Show, Game of Thrones, Atypical. Fosse Verden and Station 19. Other topics of discussion included who they admired when first starting out, what keeps them going during the COVID-19 pandemic-inspired production hiatus, and how they expect their work and their process might change in the future.
1: Thank you all. Welcome to our second special projects webinar via Zoom. We'd like to get into our panel today, but because it is the elephant in the world, I want to assure you that The things that are happening in our world today are going to have a profound effect on what we do and how we do it. So we're going to spend some time talking about that towards the end of our broadcast. So as this is Blackout Tuesday, we also want to let you know that we are not working today. We are sharing with our members. We are creating a community. And we're reinforcing some of the values that we believe in, that the DJ believes in and we as members believe in. Um, But we will get more into that towards the end of our broadcast. First things first, We're prepared to share with you our thoughts on how inspiration fuels the art of directing. So let's get started. Today we want to look at the art and craft of directing for television in this particular time uh, from a different angle. So I've asked our panelists to look deeper in preparation for this panel and to discuss as openly as they're willing to share what inspires them from the start through each work they create to see how they see themselves, how they saw themselves and how we see the future. So I've asked them to be concise, but who knows? (laughs) <laughs> to give us the real deal. I'm hoping they'll share a lot of their hearts as well as their heads here today. So let's start. Uh, David, who or what specifically inspired you to become a director?
2: Well, I first wanted to be Mary Manilow. It was the first to order my agenda. <laughs> I wanted to be the next Mary Manilow. And I realized I wasn't going to be the next Mary Manilow. The three years of musical on finally what am I going to do now? So I decided to take a Super 8 film class that's third, third year of summer. And just to see if I could maybe write music for movies. And so I um, did that. And I really, really loved the whole pro- process of really putting film together, you know, dirty your hands and rub your elbows and the whole thing and getting that going. And, and what it really did for me was the fact that in music and singing, that gave me an emotional release, it gave me a chance to kind of let my emotions go, let my emotions act and, and open up and so forth. And with filmmaking, I felt I could do the same thing. So I started writing music for my films, and I got really into the directing side of it. And it was really something that um, uh, was really worked hand in hand very well. Wow! So I,
1: I've known you for a long time, but I didn't know that it was music. Uh, let's go to Jessica. Jessica, what inspired you to get started in this in this trip to director's chair?
3: Well, I didn't have any light bulb moment. Um, I grew up always loving making things, but honestly, I don't know if, if it actually occurred to me, there weren't a lot of Asian-American women out there making films, so I just didn't register so much um, for me, but uh, I think, um, and I didn't go to film school, but I think I fell in love with the work. Um, my first job in production, I was a, I, I was a PA on some food commercials, not very inspiring, but then I worked on um, some documentaries, and the very first one was Frida Lee Mock's uh, documentary about Maya Lin. Um, and Frida's a wonderful, uh, very prominent um, Asian American director. So on that shoot, the very first shoot, they slung a nagra around my neck and I was out there recording sound. So I was like right there watching the story be gathered. And I had a front row seat watching that film be made all the way through editing. And so I didn't know in that moment, oh, I want to be a director, but I knew I wanted this. I wanted this process. I wanted this work. I wanted to see this experience shaped in this um through film so i think that that was the the
1: first spark certainly how about you michelle
3: um i
4: i like jessica i'm not sure if there's any one moment but i somehow knew i wanted to be a director from a very young age and um as a kid we grew up uh, in the summers on an island that had no electricity so our only form of entertainment was charades telling stories. And we did that a lot for years. And uh, I knew I wanted to get into the business. And I started uh, as a PA uh, on a food commercial as well. And then I worked my way up and became a a producer. But in the back of my mind, I was always thinking about directing. And I would study acting on the side because I wanted to understand what actors go through. And i take directing classes. Um, But I was doing fairly well at producing. And I became a producer um, on The X-Files. And I was producing alongside directors like David Hattern and Kim Manners, and Rob Bowman. And I had a front row seat to the best film school ever in watching these guys. And I was thinking, I want to do what they're doing. And then my grandmother passed away. My mom called me and she said, I found a letter in your grandmother's things and you need to read it right away. And she sent it to me. And it was a letter I'd written her, just telling her what I'd been up to. And I said in this letter that, oh, I just saw a movie and I hope someday I can direct a movie as well as this. I didn't write the name of the movie. It was probably restricted or something. But I wrote the date, and I was 13 years old. And my 13-year-old self gave me a kick in the pants, and I went to the producers of The X-Files, and I said, I'd like to direct. And I had earned it at this point. I mean, this is, this is a long time coming. Um, and I got very lucky, because the writer of that first episode was uh, Vince Gilliam. Wow. That's
1: a great <laughs> start. Ken, go for it. Well,
5: um, in college, my uh, my junior year, I got a job at CBS in the mailroom, and um, and work. I was just supposed to work that summer, and then I ended up getting a job as a page uh, when I went back to school. And so I worked on various comedies like uh, WKRP, Three's Company, um, shows like that. And um, and it was it was you know it was a lot of fun. A- after graduating, I have a d- degree in journalism. I started working at CBS News. But didn't really like being in the news business. Um, it just, it just wasn't what I thought it was going to be, um, here in LA. So, um, I decided to take a break and try to figure out what I was going to do. And someone's called me, a friend of mine who I had been a page with asked me if I wanted to work on the show 227 as a, um, as a PA. And, um, and initially I thought that was a little beneath me, but then I decided, Hey, I don't have a job. I need to do something. So uh, I started working on the show. And there I was inspired by a gentleman by the name of Garen Keith, who was an African-American director. And I said, wow, this is, this is really cool. This guy is. And initially I wrote a script for 227. I thought I wanted to be a writer, but after watching Garen work, um, he was my first inspiration. And after that, Jay Sandridge and then an English director by the name of Edgar Wright. So those are probably my biggest inspirations. But, uh, initially, um, I, you know, I, was, I thought I wanted to be a writer, uh, a journalistic writer. So.
1: Cool. Well, let's look at the flip side of this. Was there ever a time for y'all that you just thought you'd have to hang it up, that you were not, it's not going to work, you're not going to make it? And how did you get over that, and what inspired you to get back on your feet? Um, I, I, I just would share that I was fired from a movie when I was a music video director. I was in pre- pre-production and got fired. I didn't work for a year but he did light a fire under me to just to restart in that time and to rebuild. So anybody who wants to jump in your biggest failure and how did you get over
2: it? Mine, I, mine wasn't a failure. It was actually a wrong circumstance. And the wrong person got blamed for it. I uh, had been very fortunate. I directed a little bit of a movie with Don Johnson back in Miami. He got a lot of critical time. I came to Los Angeles. And I waited and wanted to direct and I was being for reading for, for uh uh, producers and and everybody, I mean, you can imagine. And I just couldn't get a job anywhere. So I went and played golf. <clears throat> and um, uh, one day, I was, I was pissed off and didn't know if I'd ever work again. And I happened to play with Patrick Hasberg, who had created the TV show, 21 Jump Street. And we played 18 holes of golf. And He says, let's go to the 19th hole." we had a beer. And he asked me lots of questions. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, because I lost all hope at that point. And the next day, uh, Patrick called Steve Beers and said, I want to hire David Nutter to direct an episode of the show. And he said, well, Steve Beers said, well, we look at this movie. We'll talk. And he said, no, hire him. Mm-hmm. So I got that job. And six months later, I got the job and got married. And the whole thing, my life was starting out. And then they said, you're going to come back in September. And I, I didn't get called back. I kept saying, went the problem, What's the problem, What's the problem. So a year, two years goes by. And all kinds of things about my agent and all that kind of stuff that you don't hear about. I did, but I didn't really call the producer directly, and I should have, because once the agent uh, I left my agent, then the doors opened very well for me. It was fantastic after that. Huh. Interesting, Michelle. Did you ever hit a wall and and find your way back?
4: Um, I think probably a few walls, <laughs> a few times. Uh, I guess one in particular was I was a relatively new director, and um, well, I was a very new director. I had I had mm-hmm. one credit to my name, The X Files. And uh, I decided, I knew that, that I was never going to look at, be looked at for the Emmys or anything, but I thought in those days they send out VHS tapes and it cost a lot of money and I paid a lot of money to send my VHS tape out because I thought maybe people that have shows, maybe producers will watch it and I might get hired. And Mimi Leader watched it. And mm-hmm. I had one, one credit to my name and she hired me on her new show, John Doe. And it was an awesome and terrifying experience uh, all at the, at the same time. But I was really grateful to me. And uh, Steve Beers also gave me a, an opportunity like David. Um, and then I was doing a family show. And I was supposed to do two episodes uh, for ABC Family. And after the first episode, I was replaced. I was fired. And the showrunner and I didn't really connect creatively. And I was devastated. I had very few credits to my niece and I thought oh my gosh you know what am I going to do and what went wrong and I remember I talked to my dad about it and he said well what did you do and I said well we were a runaway chain, train about to hit a brick wall and I, I spoke up about it and he goes well next time are you going to speak up about it or let the train hit the wall and I, I said well I'm going to speak up about it He goes, could you do it differently And I realized, yeah, I could do it differently. I needed to see who this particular showrunner was and understand that I wasn't a producer on the show and I needed to communicate it differently. It was a very valuable lesson for me, but I was, my confidence was, was shot a bit. And then I got a phone call and it was from Law & Order SVU. And uh, they said, we'd like you to come to New York on Tuesday to wrap an episode and I said to my agent, what, uh, what do they want to interview me? How do they know me? What's going on? He goes, no, get on the claim on Tuesday. I said, okay. And it was over Thanksgiving and, uh, we were shooting and then we came back from Thanksgiving. And I said to the executive producer, was it Thanksgiving. And he said, oh, it was great. Me later. And I said, oh, I know me. And he goes, I know you do. That's why you're here. So I am very indebted and grateful to Mimi. And shortly after that, I got a call from Vince Gilligan asking me to come and do Breaking Bad. And I knew this was this incredible opportunity. And I thought, you know, Michelle, just put away all your fears and everything. Just go for it creatively. What can happen? You could get fired and you already have been. So if you fall down, pick yourself up and keep
3: on going. And I have a lot of people I'm grateful to. (laughs)
1: All right. Jessica, let's go to you.
3: Yeah. So, well, coming out of documentaries and indie films, you always feel like your last film is your last film. You know, the problem is never, the work is always the money. So there was a long time where I just wasn't sure. It wasn't so much hitting a wall. Just not sure if I was still moving forward because there could be such a long time between um, films, between projects. I mean, I did a documentary that took five years and, I love those five years, but I loved it more if it were two years, you know. Um, But I do think that that has helped me be more agile in the episodic world, um, definitely. And I think um, the thing that kept me going, though, and I've tried to keep this throughout my career, is that I always have a project running parallel um, that is something that is my own, something that... um, I've generated or it's kind of more of a passion project because if you have a passion project, chances are you are going to see it all the way to the end. And so it just keeps that momentum going, even when the other side of you is wondering, how am I going to do this as a career? How am I going to do this professionally? And and that certainly is the turning point. Um, was a turning point for me. It was getting into commercials and into episodic um, and knowing that I could actually support myself and my family I you can't do that on an indie film um made every five years you know but I do remember I was on a, a panel when I was first up and coming and uh I think it was at Sundance or something and somebody asked you know would you ever like sell out and do tv and I remember saying something like okay that's kind of a moot point because no one wants to buy me I would actually love to sell out <laughs> and thank goodness there was um those opportunities because right now Episodic TV is one of the most creative places you can you can be in the world. So I'm very grateful for that.
1: Cool. Ken. you may now unmute, although I think the echo is coming from you. So you're going to have to stay muted when you're not talking.
5: Okay. okay. Are you sure it was me? <laughs> <Keep talking. Okay. laughs> anyway, um, I started, uh, I was a stage manager on a show called Malcolm and Eddie. And I got my first opportunity to direct on that show. And so I directed a couple of the first season, a couple of the second season. And so now I'm like, I'm on my way. And so the third season, uh, producers called me and said, "Okay," but I was still stage managing. So they said, OK, you have to make a choice. Either you're going to stage manage or you're going to direct. What do you want to do? And I said, well, it depends on how many episodes I'm going to get to direct. So they said, OK, we'll give you five episodes. And so I'm like, that's great. That's enough to, to send me on my way. We um, we got new producers that came in, and then one of the uh, the actors on the show decided that he wanted to direct them all, and so my five went to zero, <laughs> and so um, now I'm kind of out there with no job at all, two kids, and um, um, I had a, I had pre- the year before I had directed an episode of Moesha, and so producer from Moesha Jim Tripp called me and said, "Do you know anybody that might be interested in uh, being a stage manager on the show?" And so I said, me. So I went over to stage manager a show that I had already directed. So it was a very humbling experience. And at that same time, my agent had called and said, well, it doesn't look like you're getting any work this year. And we're going to drop you from uh, I think it was I was with Broder Curlin at the time. So I was dropped from my agency. I was doing a show. But being that I have an athletic background, I just didn't, I never thought about quitting. It never came across, you know, I never crossed, came across my mind that I would quit. So I just said, I just have to do something to reinvent myself. So um, luckily I got a, another opportunity on a show called the Parkers. And, um, and that, um, and that was the beginning of, uh, uh, and then I had to reinvent myself and I did a bunch of great stuff on the show. And that kind of, reignited my career, so that's uh, that's what happened with me.
1: Well, let's, let's shift gears again um, and talk about joy uh, and pride. Um, I want you to tell us about a particular instance when you felt either incredibly proud or incredibly joyful on the set. I mean, one that comes to mind with me last season, we had a homeless encampment that was in our shop on our location, and I didn't mind it, but apparently we couldn't photograph them because we didn't have the right to. So they had to go, but I didn't want to displace them. But when I came on the day, they were gone. And what I discovered is that our location, uh, one of our location managers actually worked the entire weekend to find them places to go, to find them housing, to find them temporary places to live. She went to each of them and figured out where they could possibly go. Instead of just, you know, like the cops, brushing them aside, she connected with all of them. And I was so proud of the show and proud of what she had done. Uh, we gave her an award. We gave her employee the episode. But that was just a token uh, because what I really thought was that's a show that has a big footprint and can cause a lot of wreckage in its path. But here's one person who has taken the time to care about the people that we impact. Um, moments like that, Thompson, you felt really proud
2: to be doing what you're doing. Anyone wants to go first? For me, it was the um, episode of uh, Range of Castamere, The Red Wedding. Um, with directors and television, you don't always get Reviews of the box office and all that kind of stuff because you're, you're directing episodic television. So we worked very hard on the episode and turned out quite well, I think. And what came after that, I didn't expect. What came after that was, of course, YouTube exploded and people were shooting pictures of their friends watching the episode who'd read the book. And it was amazing to get a chance to see people reacting to what I had done shooting wise. I wasn't seeing the screen. I could just watched them watch the show. And that was something that really mattered to me quite a bit. And I realized that, for me, I got to get the audience to care about something, and if I do that, then they'll they'll fall into and jump into the show all the way. And with Game of Thrones, they spent three long years really building that background, building that uh, that relationship with the audience, and they hit a home run with that. I think as far as the story was concerned, and that was a real joyful moment. And I said, "Well, it may not be a hundred million dollar movie, but I'm happy with that." (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else wants to go, Jessica?
3: Oh, well, it's sorry. I got this question late and I realized that I actually experienced joy a lot when I'm working.
1: That's cool. I,
3: I, so it's so hard to pick. And so, I. Um, but I do remember there was one time, it was kind of an intense sort of joy on American crime. John Ridley's great show uh, that really broke things open uh, for me in terms of like, what could, what could be on, on network? There was a, um, we had a, seven-minute scene, um, I'm sorry, it was like a a seven-page scene that um, John said, yes, you can totally do this in one shot, you know, you can, I I will be behind you 100%, and so shooting this very intense shot uh, where it's mostly one person speaking, and the other characters, they might not even be on, that we might not see their faces um, in the frame. They might just be moving in the background. Everyone was so focused, though. I loved seeing the support of everybody in, in the crew and everybody in the scene, knowing that it was really about this character giving testimony. And, um, and it's always that beautiful thing, too, where when you have something like that, the release of, you know, joy and the, the sort of collective high five when you know that you got it. Um, that was particularly intense there because it wasn't a big showy shot. You know, it wasn't something where, oh, you know, this has to fall in exactly the right place. And then we drop into here. It was just this very intense, slow move. And um, I just I, I really that one stands out because of no one caring about where how much
5: they were going to be featured, just getting it getting it right.
1: Beautiful. Michelle or Ken,
5: whoever wants to jump in? I think probably, I think my, the most joyous moment that I've had in television was, uh, I was one of my first network shows, which was Scrubs. And, um, Randall Winston gave me this great opportunity, Bill Lawrence gave me this great opportunity to get off UPN and start doing major network stuff. So, um, we had this, we had this one scene that I, I had this vision of taking, we had to do it from a, from a vantage point where we could see the whole city, so I decided to take a crane and put it on top of a hotel, the London Hotel, where we could see all of Los Angeles, and so and do a wonder. I wanted to do a, you know, like the one character coming from the bar, going to the table. We did a 360 around the table, and then they all get up to go dance, and then we pull out. and We see the whole city, and um, and so it was a wonder. So I think. Everybody was like, oh, my God, this is this is a very ambitious shot that he wants to do. Uh, but I just had the confidence that we, that we did that we could do it. So he did it. It was very expensive. And it was just only probably a two minute scene. Um, but we did it and it worked. And it and it and it was just such a we did four takes, but we really got it, I think, in the second take. And so um, after we did it, we achieved it. That was the last shot of the night. and. And the whole cast came up and said, welcome to Scrubs. You know, so <laughs> that was probably one of the, the best moments.
1: Love that. Michelle?
4: Um, well, like Jessica, I, I experience a lot of joy because every time we try something really hard and it works, I I feel joy and relief. And, and I'm very humbled by the crew and how hard everybody works. But just to think of something recently, I, I just finished shooting um, a new show that hasn't come out yet called Coyote. And starring Michael Chiklis. And uh, I'm one of the producers, as is Michael. And we uh, convinced the, the studio and the network to let us shoot it, uh, 100% of it, in Mexico and in northern Baja, all over the place. And in really remote, wild locations. And, you know, we were convinced we could do this and we could pull it off. And we had no idea what we were getting into. I mean, challenges. We faced challenges on a daily basis, our, our first AD brought DeSantos, who is amazing. Six times a day, we would look at each other and our jaws would drop with the challenges that were presented to us. Our crew was amazing, 98% Mexican crew, absolutely fantastic. Anyway, we were out in the desert for uh, eight days of uh, the first two episodes. And we were at these very, very remote locations. And we had one day in this really super remote location. And when we got there, we had presented with some challenges where we literally had about five hours to shoot, five scenes, five actors, motorcycles involved, people hiding, going up sand dunes and hiding behind rocks and all this stuff happening. And I knew there was no way that we were going to make this day unless we, we did a Hail Mary. And I, I went to the AD and the DP and I made a suggestion. And then I went to each of the actors and I walked them through all five scenes, one at a time, what they were gonna do. And we placed three cameras in three different places, one high and wide, one low and wide, Mm -hmm. long lens. And we did a play in the middle of the desert and it was a 22 and a half minute take. And at the end of it, all five scenes straight through, I said, cut, and you heard Brett go, oh, my God, it worked. And it was, I don't suggest anybody does this. This is not the right way to be approaching scenes, but sometimes you have to, in the, in the spur of the moment, you have to come up with something. And I was so incredibly... Proud and humbled by the actors who who went through this entire thing, the crew that that uh, were in all these different locations, and I couldn't communicate with them, and it was like doing a live play. And everybody at the end of it just cheered, and there was such joy and happiness that we actually pulled it off. And I, it was uh, it was a wonderful moment.
1: Love that. Well, that's a good segue because now I want to talk about how you generate inspiration. Because every time you open a script or start a project, you're going to have to be inspired to do it in a particular way. So, what are your sources for inspiration? What do you look to? Do you look to books? Do you look to particular movies? How do you get yourself inspired? Do you pray? Do you just, you know, what what do you do to generate inspiration? Is what I want to know. Because then I can use it. Let's start with uh, Jessica. We haven't started with you lately. Okay. I think,
3: well, maybe it's because I come out of documentaries, but I love going to source material. I love to find, uh, you know, sort of primary sources. And so like for Fosse-Verdon, uh, of course, I watched all that jazz and read the Sam Wasson um, biography. And so there, were some, there was a lot of material there. Um, I just directed the finale of Hollywood and there's a big set piece in there that's the 1948 um, Oscars. And so our production designer, Matthew Ferguson had a a really wonderful, um, like a a wealth of visual material from the 48 Oscars. And so I just wanted to look at this stuff and really let that that particular glamor soak in. It's really hard to resist. But then you look at all the pictures and there's virtually no diversity depicted, right? Hmm. So this show is about wish fulfillment. So I was thinking, I wanna take the, uh, the inspiration was the glamor of that time and then marrying it with this idea of what if things were different, so taking every modern tool we have to try to make that experience more um, particular to to our characters so um, in shooting this, so uh, when we were shooting this, we had uh you know we had six cameras, not enough days. it was really um, we had so much time pressure, but we sort of used that to try to create. Again, this this feeling of um, like we're putting on the show, so there was like a show behind the show kind of feeling. And when you see these, you know, hundreds of background actors, everyone dressed to the nines, and you really feel like you're you're there. And our ad team um, was just spectacular. We had Michelle Labrecque who was everybody about what was going on, where we're feeling. You're here at the Oscars, and so I think for that um, it was. Really trying to transpose that feeling of looking at that source material and thinking, I want to feel what that felt like, but I want to tell this story. So trying to make, spoiler alert, there's a lot of winning for our characters in the show, trying to make those moments really personal and each one feel different. And then, again, just trying to make it the perfect experience of that, that kind of glamour. What if we could have that?
1: So, and David, David, what about you? Because you can't, you do a lot of things that are in the supernatural sci-fi world. How do you find an original way to approach it? How do you
2: get prepared to do something different or not? Well, it's a situation where after I did the X Files, people would come to me and they, come to me and they would say, well, "Let's go do a show that's kind of like the X Files." And did whole month same thing and do something different and bigger <laughs> and all the science fiction stuff. That's not the secret to the X Files. The secret to the X Files is the fact that this is real world. This is our world they live in, and these are real people. You may not always understand what Scully and Mulder are saying and their, their use of verbiage and words and so forth, as you wouldn't with sometimes Anthony Edwards and George Clooney, but you see that they're, they're passionate about what they do, and they really mean that, and they really go after these things. and It really means the world to them. And I'm always also really attracted to shows about uh, broken families, I think. I think that uh, it shows like The Mentalist or The... Simon Baker character lost his wife and daughter and supernaturally had two brothers going after their dad after their mother was killed. I, uh, my father died in a car accident when I was a year and a half old. And I was always kind of drawn to that, that kind of story. And it was a situation where <clears throat> those, I always get drawn to those kind of stories. But when you talk about a moment of wanting to really be inspired, it's important and necessary for me to be inspired. But What also is important is to inspire the crew. Inspire the actors. That's the job of the director, I think. Because once you get these, once they know that you know what you're doing and you give it, you really care, that's so very important. When I did Band of Brothers, I realized that people who watch this show may have never seen an inch of footage from the real World War II. We have a responsibility to make this great. ER was the same way, Pacific was the same way, and I kind of treat all the shows like that. I, I want to give it a sense of reality, but also, try to inspire the crew because I've worked a lot of times as crews and I may get a few more setups here and there, whatever, but they feel like they're following somebody. And I think the Pied Piper parts are important, too. People want to be directed and actors want to be directed. Jamie Gondafini wants to be directed. Vanessa Redgrave wants to be directed. And you have to just go in and do your thing and direct. And to me, that really is the thing that uh, inspires me. Love that. Ken or Michelle, I mean, I,
1: I, did you do you just steal things? you're actually, is there anything um, where you just take like I do?
4: Well, um, when I start a new project, um, I'll use The Deuce for example, which is a, a pilot I did for HBO, which uh, had to do with the history of pornography in the seventies in New York city. And uh, I like to immerse myself in the world that I'm going to be working in. And so there's great photography from that era. There's great music, there's great films from that era. Um, and I was very inspired by all of them. I also, the DP and I walked the streets of, of New York for, for weeks and, and really studied and learned the city. And I I was really hoping that the audience would be able to feel and smell, because there was a garbage strike then, um, what New York was like and how different it was from uh, today, and there was so much wonderful inspiration. And of course, one of the main inspiration is Martin Scorsese from uh, doing Taxi Driver. But they were doing Vinyl. It was for HBO. HBO was doing Vinyl at the time, and they said, "Michelle, the one thing is just don't make sure it looks different from Vinyl." And I thought, "Oh no, Scorsese did the pilot of Vinyl, and he's like one of my greatest inspirations." I thought I better not watch. Vinyl, because I'll I'll be influenced by it. So I've never seen vinyl, and uh, but I watched all these great movies uh, like Taxi Driver and Klug and Shaft and uh, French Connection and and um, and I realized too that these uh, these filmmakers, as great as they are, <laughs> they're amazing. They made these movies in the seventies. They walked out the door, and anywhere they pointed the camera, they it looked like the seventies because it was. But we were recreating something. And so we were inspired by all these wonderful people. Um and the production designer, the cinematographer, the costume designer, and I put together a, a huge lookbook for, for everybody that would uh show the feel and the and and the look for the show. And I, I think by the time we started shooting, I, I felt hopefully through osmosis, the whole crew was gonna you know, have, have this feeling, uh, for the show. And of course, we started shooting and, you know, things change. You don't have time to do this. And you're throwing things out right, left and center. And then, and I remember getting to sitting down for the first cut, um, of the pilot in with the editor. And I had sent this lookbook to the editor and I had finished watching his cut and I picked up the lookbook and I thought, I wonder if we kept anything from it. And we did the essence of what we wanted to do was there and I think it was because it was a collaboration of everybody. And so all these people, as fast as we were moving, as we were making choices, we were making them relevant to the story that we were were
5: telling.
1: Mm -hmm. Cool.
5: Ken? I think what inspires me and what has always inspired me um, is the ability to make people laugh. And um, it's such a drug. Um, I can remember being in school I was a guy. I mean, my friends and I—we were always the kind of guys that would stand in the hallway and you know crack jokes and tease people. And now that's considered bullying. But it's uh, we, you know, we really enjoyed Richard Pryor and SNL and, and all these shows. And so we were just—that's what really inspires me. So what inspires me today are the shows. Some of the shows that I watch, and I go, "Oh, I think I could really do something with that show. I want to be on that show." So I really seek out certain types of comedy, and certain writers. It's very important to me, and that's what really inspires me because I want to be able to put, as James Burl says, sometimes I put leaves on the tree. I want to be able to make it better. So that's the inspiration for me. How can I make this better? Working with people like Tina Fey, who's just, in my opinion, just a genius, and uh, to see if I can po- possibly top her, you know, uh if I can possibly make her funnier than she already is. So uh I think it really starts with for me in the comedy world, the written word uh first and then how can I make it better? Um but mm-hmm. I'm I'm constantly, I mean I'm just so in a zone whenever I have a script. Um I just I'm just totally there. I'm dreaming about it, thinking about it. How can I make it better? So I think that's my inspiration.
1: That is great. I just got a question from a member here uh, that asked and I think it's a very good question, so I'll pose it. How often do you pull from your personal life to frame a scene or develop the character? That's from Sterling Brown, DJ member. How often do you pull from your personal life? And it's it's one of the things I really want to get to too is how does that, David, you touched on it a little bit in your how your background influenced the choices you made, but how does your personal life figure in? And is there a specific time where Something either happened in
2: your personal life or you were able to develop it into the story. Well, um, to find something of my own that I can think about, uh, I'll have to take a minute for that. But the thing that I really try to do is in working and in preparation is getting to know the actors. And getting to know what they're all about, where they're from, what, they're, what their whole planned story is, just to get to know them as people. And then get to watch them and do their work and so forth before I begin to direct them. And what happens a lot of times is the fact that my goal is to try to find out something personal to them that I can relate the moment to, that I can make it personal for them, that I can make it feel like, you know, this is something that, um, uh, could really touch them in some respect. So an example of that was in uh, Game of Thrones, uh, uh, Brienne is left by Jamie at the Winterfell. And there was a big scene there and it was the one that he was leaving her, telling her that, uh, he, he was a bad, bad man and he did everything for Cersei. And I don't, you know, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. You, I'm leaving you, and he just got, to get some sort and rides right away. And she kept kind of coming up, I guess, a little bit blank at that moment. And so I went over to, to Nikolai and I said, Nikolai, on the last line, don't say that w- those words say, and, and I don't love you either. And I don't love you anymore. And Rand's character has always been one that so honored and and so held Jamie in such wonderful you know, he was close to her heart all the time. And so Nikolai, who's a tremendous actor, and they both are. Um it was a situation, the scene went on, and we did the scene, and he was telling her he's not gonna all these terrible things, and then his last line was, And I don't love you. And Gwendolyn She lost it. It was a surprise, something she wasn't expecting. And it was really something very special. And I I really felt very happy about that. And it was good. And, you know, the next time uh, Nikolai said, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. And and then Gwendolyn said, can you do that again? That was really helpful to me that time. It was really helpful that I got a chance to do that. So I was happy that uh, she got nominated for Emmy this last year. And I thought that may have had a little something to do with it.
1: Great. Anyone else want to tackle how their personal life might have helped them frame a scene or to develop a character? Sure. Um, one time uh, we were in a
5: we had a table read on Blackish, and the script um, it just wasn't it wasn't it wasn't right. Something wasn't it was it just wasn't reading correctly. Something was wrong with it. At all. And I never chime in uh, during uh, for the network notes right after the table read, but. I kind of pull something from my personal life. I have a wife and three kids, well young adults now. But um we were talking about the family dynamic. And um and my fix to the to the to the show, to the to the episode was that you know a lot of times kids will try to play parents against each other. You know, they'll do they in a manipulative way. And so um my fix was that you can't be friends with your kids, you know, when you're, you know, when you can't let your kids get in between you and your wife, you have to be a united front and, and they will try, but no matter how hard they try, you have to, you can't negotiate with the kids when it comes to parenting. You have to, you and your wife have to be on the same page. So that's one of my, one of my stories. And that actually
1: and, fixes, it fixes and worked on the script. I yes. love that. Jessica, Michelle, do you have a personal story that invaded your world? You think it?
4: I I would say that um a piece of ourselves come through in everything that we do. Uh it's like whether you're writing or directing or painting or playing music, uh it's we're subjective storytelling. And so I think always a piece of us comes through. Um and I have many moments I was I was held at gunpoint in Uganda many years ago and I can tell you there's many times on film sets I think to myself if I got through that I could get through this moment um but I have a not a specific moment uh on a film set but something that influenced me greatly was when I was 25 years old uh I sat down on an airplane I never talked to the people beside me but for some reason I turned to the gentleman beside me and we started chatting and it was John Baten and I thought, I'm going to do the really obnoxious thing and say, I would like to be a director someday. Do you have any advice for me? And, uh, and John was so gracious and generous. And for two and a half hours, he talked to me about directing. And the most profound thing he said to me was really, really simple. And it's something I've never forgotten. He said, imagine the cameras in the hallway of an apartment building. Your actor is coming out their apartment door, walking down the hall. They do it once and you want them to go faster. He goes, never say go faster. Say to him, okay, can you do it again? You forgot your keys and you're late for the most important meeting of your life. And that was one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever been given to. And it came from just a very personal moment on an airplane. And I'm I'm really grateful to, to
3: John for that.
1: love that. Jessica, do you want to add anything on this?
3: Yes, actually, I have the most personal one, which is that, um, so I did a, um episode of a Netflix comedy called Lady Dynamite, and it's about uh, the comedian Maria Bamford. It's sort of a surreal take on her real life. And the episode that they asked me to do is where she and the man, the character who in real life eventually becomes her husband, Scott Cassidy, they break up. So I'm very dear friends with Scott Cassidy. So her her real-life husband... And so the scene that was happening in the comedy happened in real life. Like Scott, when they broke up, he came to our house and he was like, I don't know why she's breaking up with me and everything. And then they got back together again. So I was filming like her side of that 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 chapter in their life and it was very a really really funny episode but it was very strange to see this sort of twisted other side and then there was a future episode in the next season i didn't direct it but i was uh there was a character loosely based on me uh named jessica who it was very
1: <laughs> a loosely.
3: film director so they made it yeah, it was, oh my gosh, and it was, um, she had made a film called Best Friends about her friendship with Scott, um, and so they had these posters with this woman who was cast as Jessica Who and I was like, can I have that poster? So I have it framed in my office, um, the famous documentary by Jessica know
2: yeah. You know, real quick, if I may, uh, talking about inspirations, when coming out to Los Angeles again, I couldn't work the whole thing, and I remember going to the Beverly Hills Market, I just watched the, the, the uh, Emmys. So I went to Beverly Glen Market, and the man standing in line is Robert Butler. And I kind of walked up to him not, walked up to him obnoxiously, and I, I talked talking to him a little bit, and he said, well, he took his, he was writing a check. So he basically tore off the check and had a deposit slip in and it, and had his phone number. He said, give me a call. And so basically, it's so crazy that we had lunch several times. He was a wonderful inspiration, such a kind man. And for us to have kind of a parallel career, I mean, he's a he's monster. He's the king of all. But to have kind of parallel career has been a really interesting thing, and I love talking to him when I get a chance to see him.
1: Yeah, if those aren't familiar with the Bob Butler over. He did the Pilots and Hill Street Blues and Superman and Moonlighting and other great shows. Yeah, that that really helped establish their look and feel, uh, and is a, is a truly great man. So let's go a little deeper then, um, because some of you mentioned your family and some of you mentioned your life, and I'm very interested in knowing how your family figures into your inspiration. I mean, for example, I don't think I could do Sons of Anarchy today. Now that I've adopted these two boys and now that they're teenagers, I'm not sure I would be able to do that show. Not that it's a bad show, but I'm not sure I would make that choice because I, you know, since they've grown and since they've been a part of it and they're two, you know, African American young men, I kind of wanted to do things that went in a different direction. Has your family influenced your work and has it, has it weighed on you in some cases or other sacrifices you've made? your family in order to do these things? Anyone wants to do things?
3: I would say that it definitely uh, helps you choose. It gives you some clarity in wanting to work with people who are decent and wanting to work on a material that is great because you feel that if you're going to be away from your family and doing this, it had better be worthwhile on that level that said, I don't think that I choose things because of my family. There's a, I think my kids pay exactly the right amount of attention to what I do, which is not all that much, but, um, but we sat down, we watched the whole of Hollywood together. And at the end, you know, there's this again, spoiler alert, but anime Wong has this great moment on the Oscar stage, which obviously she didn't have in real life. It's very emotional. And at the end, I remember my 15 year old, she was crying and she, she turned to me and she said, mom, I'm so proud of you. And for me, that was just, Okay, <laughs> I'm good. I don't, you know, that's that's all I need. So there are those little rewards that you that you get, and I think part of it comes from the choices that you make of what you want to work on.
1: I love that, David. You
2: you went off mute. Yes, I'm off. Yeah, off, off mute. Yes. Um, an interesting part of my career would be something, and it, it still affects me, and still deal, I deal with it every day. Sometimes, It's the fact that when I go to direct, I put on my big boy shoes in my big boy pants and I'm off to direct, and I have answers and I'm smart and I'm just, uh, all that kind of stuff and and wise and all these wonderful things. But the minute I'm not on set, the minute I'm not performing, I come home and I'm like, you know, my son would say to my mom, is my his, my wife? He'd say, Mom, what are you waiting on? What are you taking? Why are you doing that for? Why, why are you doing that? Because she understood what it was all about. Um, so to me, last year my wife died, and I realized how much she had influenced me and helped me through those many, many years where we did so much stuff together. She took care of the children and understood for me and, and was just my, my total you know, pair as far as that was concerned. And we really bonded on that. I think we bonded on our, raising our children and so forth. And now I'm just going to try to find that strength and uh, through changes in my own life and to, through relationships and so forth. And one in particular, I'm really starting to get that back again. And I, I hope to use that in a better way. Uh, I also, um, well, in 2016, I found out I had Parkinson's disease. And I said, oh, my God, what's going to happen? My, 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 what's going to happen to me? And they said, well, you take this medicine, you work hard, and keep, keep your thing going, you'll be fine. And it hasn't affected me in any way. But it's made me more sensitive to people. It's made me more sensitive to the, to the people I'm working with. And I enjoy myself a whole lot more. I didn't enjoy myself too much in directing because i beat myself up. I'd forget what I did the the next show. I think I'd never done it before. This time, when I did the last season of Game of Thrones, I was Mm -hmm. like, I got this hammer. We'll be fine. I'll be, I got this all taken care of. And it was a whole lot of fun. The last season was the best experience I ever had because I enjoyed it. I let myself enjoy it. Mm -hmm.
1: And David, you left out the year of back surgeries you had because it would just make you sound incredibly like Joe, but you came (laughs) back from that too. You were pretty. you got back in the chair after not even being able to walk. So, well,
2: it's, it's a situation where I think that uh, if you want to direct and you love to direct, don't let anything stand in your way. You just can't.
1: Hmm. I hear you. anyone else want to join, you? Michelle or Ken? Sure.
5: Um, my my wife has <clears throat> always been very supportive of whatever whatever I want to do, and um, and however my kids. Uh, would put a tremendous uh, guilt trip on me when they were. At, I had to go out of town, and because you know they were young, and they just didn't want me to be gone for two weeks or two or three weeks, or however mm-hmm. it took. So um, that was always hard. It was always hard. Um, but so I just start to make better choices. Yeah. Um, if it was a show like Thirty Rock, I would try to explain to them like, I have to go do this this show in New York and it's really important. And, and so eventually they understood, but that was, that was one of my biggest difficulties really kind of explained to them when they were younger, how important this was to my career. And, but also they needed me at home. I mean, my, my wife did an amazing job. She put her, her career on hold so I could have, so I could live my dream. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so um, she has just been a, just a wonderful just, Support system. Uh, she's she's created as a wonderful support system. I should say.
1: I just tell. Do you like this house? <laughs> <laughs> I guess. It was, you like. You like your bedroom, uh, Michelle? Do you want anything to that?
4: Um. I would just say that. uh I think I. I. I love directing, and as as David said, if you if you love doing it, you got to do it. I, I'm sure it's how actors feel or writers feel, and I I do love doing it, but I sacrificed a lot um in uh in having the career that i that i have and i've struggled a lot from not balancing my personal life and my career and uh and there's been very painful times directing can be really lonely i mean you're the the leader on the set and you've got to have put your big boy pants on as, as david says and then a lot of times you go back to, in my case, an empty hotel room at night and, and it can be hard. It can be, it can be really hard. Um, and I always kind of thought everything, the, the perfect picture would happen. You know, I'd meet Mr. Wright, we'd have kids and a picket fence and a directing career. <laughs> so, and I think some people do it. I mean, Jessica does it, you know, it's it, it, but it didn't happen that way for me. Um, and uh, so I had to go about it a different way. And, uh, and I have a beautiful little girl now. Um, and she comes to set with me. And, uh, I, I remember when the first time she came to set, my parents were thinking, well, is that appropriate? And I thought, you know, I get that everybody doesn't get to bring their child to set, but, and she's not like she's on the set all the time, but, um, but she's there with me because it's just the way my life is. I'm single. I don't have somebody to to stay home and, and watch her. Obviously she has nannies, but, it's. I want her to be part of my world, and she's, she's got a different upbringing um, in, in some ways, and hopefully it is adventurous and exciting and, and wonderful, um, and I'm beyond grateful, and it gives me, I think, uh, as a storyteller, it gives me insight into a new world that I didn't have. I mean, there are shows that I would say no to because of the pain of not having a family. I didn't want to put myself in the, on those shows which were about family and now I, I can make different choices I mean as a result I did really testosterone driven stuff which I love and it, and it's great um, I wasn't making those choices to avoid anything I was making those choices because I love doing it but I feel that my choices are greater now and uh, I have a, a greater joy in in what I'm doing
1: I love that uh, I just got a question from member Benny boom um, he wants to know how do you plant your flag in a show and become more than a guest director how do you become more than a guest director? I think it's a great question for a lot of our members who are out there who aren't in the position that that uh, some of us are up here how do you how do you make your mark without breaking the place I mean what's the balance how do you find it you know all of them have to answer that but anyone who wants to tackle it it's a good question um i
4: uh, I'll jump in quickly and then I'm I that more but I always liken it to probably being a chef and you come over to somebody else's house and you're going to cook in their kitchen with their pots and pans and you're going to serve them dinner and you want to make a fabulous dinner with their recipe, but you want to be invited back. So you want to have a little bit of spice of your own that makes what you did a little bit more identifiable to you and a little bit special. And I, I think that that's to me a very basic way. I often say that to people who aren't in the business who ask that question, but I think that it really depends on the show as well. Um, there's certain shows that you, that, and they're not that many these days, but there's in the past, there's been certain shows which have a certain set look. And if you're going to be a guest director on that, you're going to, you're going to stick to that. Maybe you'd add a little bit of spice here or there. Um, I'm I'm taking this opportunity to segue into complaining David Nutter because yeah. Uh, when I when I was hired first hired to do Game of Thrones, I called David and I said, "David, could we please go for lunch? I I, I want to ask you some advice." And he said, "Sure." So we went to lunch, and he said, "Michelle, the best piece of advice I can give you about directing Game of Thrones is it's a Porsche. Get in and drive it." And it was I was so grateful for that piece of advice. Not that they had all the money and time in the world. But they needed directors to come and go and challenge them to take this and do this with it, to lead a crew of 700 people or, or whatever it was. And it was so generous and kind of David to give me that uh, advice because I'd never done anything uh, that big before. And it's, it's as Jessica was saying, television has evolved into this incredibly creative medium and we have so much more freedom than we've had in the past and we get to take risks and we get to try things and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but I think bringing some of your flavor something that you from your point of view or from the character's point of view that you bring to the to the table that just makes it a little bit adds a little spice can can really uh, be beneficial
1: I love the spice for the simple way that I heard it. John Wells told me, who was the first person to hired me. He said, everybody wants another episode of ER, which was a show I was working on later, only better. So that's your job, to make another episode of ER, not a different show. Make this show, but better. And I think that's what I've always thought about, how you can do a little bit of spice, like you said, to improve it, but not too much. When Quentin Tarantino did ER, they were completely freaked out. It wasn't an episode of ER anymore. They lost what was the show.
2: David, you want to add something to that? Sure. Um, I think um, fortunately, I've, I've had a lot of chances to to work on shows that I really respect. And to me, as a guest director, I want to do the best episode of that show from my point, from my perspective. But it has to stay within the lines of the show, as everyone said. And I also feel it's really so very important. Spending a lot of time with the writers. As an episode director, writers are the ones that kind of took me to my second show, my third show, my fourth show, whatever, relationships. They're the most important relationships to have because they are really come sometimes really higher, the ones that have the power to hire and fire. So I think that it's very important to really get to know the writers and get to know what's in between the lines. Watch as many episodes as you can. And don't come in with a style and say, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I let the script tell me where it's going to go. And I also use the, the limitations of, what I see on the show before hopefully given you know, my perspective we can give it to something else but it's really something that uh, I want to you know make me seamless in that respect and Jessica did you want to add something to that
3: yeah just I think that that's exactly right what Michelle what uh, you said Paris what David has said that it's less about um, putting your stamp on it than doing the most amazing job that that you can and I love Michelle's um, uh, metaphor of cooking we all have our different Um, metaphors for how we think about being a guest director. I always feel like I'm the foreign exchange student, you know, and you, you arrive and you go, oh, how do you do it in your country? In my country, we do this. And so there's a little bit like sharing of culture. And to speak to what David was saying about getting to know the writers, I would say, Everyone has their favorite prep meetings. I love the tone meeting because I think that's the point, the time when you really get to talk about story. And if you have something in your bag of tricks that you really want to try or you've got something that's bold that maybe you haven't seen on the show, it also can be a time to just feel that out and see if that is something that
1: works within the vision of the show. Cool. And um, I just, just want to move to uh, moving forward now. Um, we're going to go back to work before too long. It's going to be a new post-COVID world, and there's going to be a lot of protocols, as you saw yesterday from the announcements that went out. There's even more coming from the DJ soon. Um, so things are going to change. I'm just wondering if you guys have given any thought to how your role as a director might change. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot, but I've been thinking, I'm always sort of a safety Nazi. Those who've worked on shows that I've been on know that I'm nuts about safety and stunts. And now this has ignited a fuse in me to really increase my consciousness and my, my awareness of every crew member and how the choices I make impact that crew member and their health, including the length of the days and the kinds of shows I said. I'm just wondering if you guys have given any thought to that, how your job might be a little bit different in the post-COVID world and what you're intending to do.
2: Well, I think it's important for the director to make people feel that like they're safe, make people feel it's all going to be fine. And if they have anybody has a problem, speak up, speak up, speak up. I uh, did a low-low-budget movie called um, Tran- Transfers 4 and 5 in Romania many, many years ago. And they had just had a revolution. Ceausescu had just basically been killed. And these people were coming out of nothing. The AD would come to the set every morning, and he'd be saying, good morning, good morning. And it was a situation in which he made $40 a month, or $60 a month, I think. And I, found, I was really inspired by that. But of course, in going to Romania, this is the time that a people was happening. They had the big AIDS epidemic in the in the orphanages and so forth. And I brought everything for the crew. I mean, for the cast, I brought I brought ketchup bags. I brought medicine. I brought all the stuff. I was like, "Doctor, Miss Doctor, feel good," and it was, it was all important that they came out of there without a scratch because they came there on my behalf. And that's something that it's so very important to let people know that they matter, of course, and let them know that anything they have to say, speak up. Yeah. We're yeah, on to tackle that. they start- on family and shooting yeah Anyone else, Ken you wanted to get sure some? yeah, I think
5: I think doing your homework, I mean, really coming in more prepared, um, really having your fit together because time uh, you, you we're not going to have a lot of time to spend on the set anymore, so I think really coming in, not waffling, really being definite about what you want to achieve to make the day go faster, and really. Caring, I mean, I, I I naturally care about. I'm from the crew, so I I love the crew, and I'm a I'm a crew guy at heart. So um, really making sure that everybody feels comfortable and everybody knows that we have you know you you have it together, and we're not going to be there all day. So I think that's going to be key. But as far as you know, I don't I don't know what the future is going to hold as far as testing, you know, vaccines. I, I really don't know. But I think what I can do is try to make
1: streamline the day. Yeah. And Jessica, I read in the DJ Magazine back in 2012, you said, I have learned that you have to embrace your biggest obstacle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I'm wondering if that will come into play here with this new post-COVID world.
3: Yeah. I don't know. I've always found that extreme limitations are the source of great creativity. I mean, it's just... That's how it happens. But, and we're all problem solvers. I mean, this is so much of what we do in our job and we're also communicators. And this is going to require a level of communication and trust that we, that it's un, unprecedented. What I do hope um is that it won't cost too many crew jobs in mm-hmm. go forward. That's a huge, huge issue that I've thought a lot about. And then the other thing is if it does affect hours, if we're doing French hours and if that becomes our day, there's a part of me that thinks, Maybe this will address um, an issue that we've all faced in the work that we do, is that sometimes our hours, we're all willing to work, we all do it, but sometimes our hours feel dangerous. And I think that this might be
1: something that opens up that discussion. Yeah, I agree. Michelle, do you have anything you want to
2: add to that? Well, the 10-hour day in in overseas is a great day, and you get a lot of work done, that's for sure. And you get to get home for dinner. Michelle?
4: That's that's just what I was going to add to that was – I do think, as as David said, that our job is to make everybody feel safe and feel heard. Um, But I think our industry has bad habits, especially in North America, and we work way too long of hours. And having working overseas, where they work ten hours, where you you can have an eight a.m. call and be done at six, you can actually have a life. Uh, You can go home, work out, have dinner with your family, whatever it is, and those are really important. And I would love to see our industry in North America to change our habits and and to work French hours or whatever it is that's appropriate for the, the specific show. Just because it's been away for a long time doesn't mean it has to continue being that way. It's, it's unhealthy. And I, I think we should look at our, our habits and, and see how we can change them to uh, to just make it a, a better work environment for everybody.
1: I also want to do a quick commercial for the DJ team too, because I know we have a lot of team members who are, are listening in on this. I'm just imploring every director, not just the ones that hire in a show that I'm producing, but every director to really think about how can I use this group more efficiently to get this done, to make everything more efficient? How much information can I give them? How much can I share? How quickly can I make decisions that will then allow the UPM and the ADs and the second ADs to do their job more efficiently? Because it's not shit that's rolling down. It's really the genius that rolls down. And I wonder if we also can help to make that commitment as directors to really just, you know, keep everyone more informed than ever, closer to us than ever in our DJ team. I think that's a way we can make this role better. Jesse, you want to say something? I'm sorry I jumped in.
3: Oh, not no. at all. I was just going to say that, well, that one issue, too, that I think that uh, might be affected in all this. is just in episodic, the length of scripts that we get sometimes where, um, oftentimes, where we know this is not all going to fit in our cut. Um, And so maybe, again, decision making to help um, appropriately fit the amount of days, the
1: amount of hours that we have. I think that's a really, really good point. So now let's move to this state of unrest and this state of, you know, crazed national politics, the incredible inequities that we're seeing just sort of ripped off the Band-Aid of institutional racism. It's all in our faces now. I mean, and I've been thinking a lot about what Dr. King said here, and I brought the quote, the true measure of a man is not how he behaves in moments of comfort and convenience, but how he stands in times of controversy and challenge. So now I'm throwing down here, I'm saying, what can you do in your position as a director or sometimes as a producer to be part of the solution? What do you think the solution may be? I mean, we're responsible individual people, but we also have this enterprise that we're helming that sometimes has hundreds of people working on it and is its own little society. So there are things that we could do. There are things that we have control over. Have you thought about or have you considered how you might, as a director or as a storyteller, help to, you know, if not balance, combat this, 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 you know, situation when the societal
2: problem. It's a big question. Um, one thing I'll say is that um, I told you my past recently and so forth. And what's really happened for me, which has been a wonderful thing, is I found I have a relationship now that we're, 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 a, real, we're a real team. We really love each other. And it's a situation in which we want to go out and do stuff together because I needed to fix myself before I wanted to do anything. So she and I have work talked about doing a lot of stuff. We've been helping doing some food lines and donating here and donating there. And it's really important to really do that and feel part of the, really feel part of the community. Also doing some, all work with a lot of politicians work as well. Mm-hmm. Anyone else thinking about how this might
1: make you a different kind of director?
4: Um, I would say that uh, so much of it is about choices and what we mm-hmm. The you know what we decide to work on and, and not work on, um, and what we decide to develop. I think a lot of us develop. I early in early in my career, I would take any job that somebody would offer me because I needed to get experience. And then I got to the a point where I thought, well, actually, maybe I could start to ask to be on certain shows and be part of certain stories that I that that meant something to me. And um, and now I think that we're in a place where during times of great upheaval, people often turn to art for answers. And one of the strongest forms of communication is entertainment. And we can hopefully maybe start conversations, start people thinking. I mean, there are many people who already do this. Uh we're we're our show that we're just finishing is has to do with immigration. And on the surface, we want it to be, we hope it's a entertaining, uh, action drama, but underneath it's really a conversation between Mexico and America. And so we thought, let's try and make something entertainment, entertaining that might help start a conversation that may open people's eyes to look at things differently. And to see that our world isn't black and white, it's, it's gray. And that we need to understand that there's different points of view from whatever, from different walks of life. Not everybody has the same experiences, but at the base of it all, we're all human. And I think that what we do, what we're fortunate enough to do for a living is we communicate to a lot of people and that maybe our choices in in what we do can, can help shine lights on things,
1: start conversations. Anyone else want to add to that?
5: I think, um, I think through, through comedy, I think it's very important to kind of shine a light on some of the ridiculous, um, uh, Ways we look at people, you know, and just kind of, kind of show that, that we're all alike, that we're all the same. And we just do it in a comedic way without being too political and about being, um, accusatory or anything like that. Just kind of shining a light on how, you know, some of our, our, our thoughts may be a little off and without being insulting. So I think it's, and it's a very fine line. You just have to really do it in a, in a very clever way. So I think, um, I think that's, that's my goal. Mm-hmm. Because my wife and I, we are right. And the reason I'm, I'm saying that my wife and I are writing a show right now while we had this time off. And we're really tackling a lot of issues that are going on right now in the world and the way people look at each other. And, and we're doing it in a very committed way without being, you know, accusatory or insulting or rude or whatever. Um, so that's, uh, that's, I think that's my goal.
1: Jessica, you want to say something?
3: Yeah, I was just going to say with um, what Michelle said really resonates with, uh, that it comes down to, to choices, the kind of work that you want to do. I think it also comes down to um, some things that I'm sure everybody in this group does. Mentorship, you know, um, trying to help others come up to be able to tell their stories. When you have um, the the some influence, some power over hiring, trying to continue to be inclusive, um, and give, give, give people a chance. Again, these are all tools that will help them to be able to, to tell their stories. And then, you know, again, I've always had projects that I, are uh, more passion projects, um, in parallel with my, uh, other work. And so like right now I'm adapting, um, uh, a, a Chinese American, um, young novelist's first book into a series. And again, it's just, choosing those things where, hey, this is time, this is effort that I really want to um, put somewhere that's going to matter and put something in the world that maybe we don't see, we haven't seen yet, or we don't see enough of.
1: So. Yeah, I, I, I just implore everybody, I think every choice that you're making when you're a director can impact the story and impact the audience. And whether you cast Black men as robbers, whether you cast, you know, this you know Chinese American woman, to be Murdered, Everything that you do has an impact. And so I'm just saying you have to look at all these choices. You may not have written the story, but you can help to develop it. You can impact on it. And the way that you present it is going to be critical towards how it's perceived. And we cannot discount the power that this media has. It has enormous power. And I think it's it's going to be one of the keys to change if we're ever going to get past this moment. It's going to be in the stories we tell and how compelling we can tell. them. I'm fortunate that I'm in Shondaland. Where that's just like the rule. We just go there. It's always about going there and finding the, the story that matters. So uh, not everyone is. Okay, so we have gotten some more um, um, questions from our audience, and they're really interesting. They've generally fallen down into, we can do this as a lightning round. People really want to know just you know the three things they can do to make it into the director's chair. A lot of people listening to this have not gotten their first episode yet. So what are the three things just, you know, really simple that they can do that they have to do in today's environment to get into the director's chair?
2: Anyone? Well, you have to make a short film. You have to show people you know how to direct. You have to show people that you've got what that takes. Because as, as people are looking for directors all the time, like horror movies, for instance, they want to see someone's done a horror movie. Maybe not a great horror movie, but he's done a horror movie at least. Right. And it's important right, to try to go out and do something to show people. You got to um, have something to show. What else? That's everything.
3: <laughs> I would say uh, one thing is, uh, yeah, it's hard to go out and shoot right now, but if you have any footage, even if it's a film, you've already worked on spending more time thinking about editing, doing editing. There's times when I have thought, oh, gosh, I would love to actually recut something I've actually I've done before. Um, you learn so much about your own failings as a director when you edit. You learn about how to put the story together, what shots you really need. So that is something I think um, could be really
1: That's useful. And just tell totally you the
3: craft, right?
1: As soon as things open up, if you want to be a director, take an acting class and take a directing class. I mean, an acting class is even more important. So you really know if you're coming from a different area, or even if you've been an ad and you think you've seen a lot of it, an acting class can really help you with that communication. Yeah, I uh, I
5: agree with you, uh, Paris, one hundred percent. I was just going to say that acting classes. Are so important because you have to be able to communicate with actors and effectively, and and I also, Jessica, I agree with you as well. If you understand the editing process, then you don't shoot a lot of stuff that you really don't need. And so, mm-hmm. I really think that that's important class. So, I know at the beginning of my career, I used to sit in with uh, a guy named Henry Chang, and uh, Henry, Henry, and I would just sit him with for hours to understand editing, and it helped me so much as a director. Um, so I would I would agree with both of you on that. Anything else anyone wants to add? Quick tips?
4: I guess really quick I would say because I agree with everything that these guys are saying is also if you've directed something if you've directed a two minute short you are a director. Tell everybody that you want to be a director. Say that you are a director. Be tenacious. Be confident. You, and and yet humble. You don't want to oversell yourself, but believe that you have that ability, believe in what you can uh, do and, and let everybody know, even if you're paying and you're talking to the director, let them know that you're directing short films on, on the weekends. And uh, everybody understands that you've got to start somewhere. Everybody's got a cell phone. You can make a movie with that. You can make a, a, a three minute movie with that practice, practice, practice.
1: Uh, Some questions are about what has helped you? What's the valuable thing you learned that's helped you to direct actors better? Um, I just say be kind. You know, in everything that you say, be kind. They're really very sensitive, very thoughtful, and most actors really care. And they're not up for just being manipulated or being brusquely shoved aside you should talk to them with the kindness that you would talk to someone you love. and Maybe you even might love these actors, which makes it even easier. But you can be funny, you can be light, but you must be kind. They will not hear anything you say if it comes from a place of control. And I need you to stand over here. Directing actors is about the kind expression of what the actor needs to hear to make the character move forward. Um, that's just one. Anyone else have any thoughts on directing actors
2: quickly? I think getting to know them is, is a very important thing as well. And that's such an important thing to do that. And also, I think it's very important to be intimate with the act, with actors. You know, I hear actors a lot of times will tell me, you know, he's yelling at me from the, from the video booth and they're hear me. He's yelling at me to do this, say this loud or whatever. And I never do that. I've never done that ever. I always walk up to the actors and we talk amongst ourselves. And we're it's a very intimate situation. And I don't uh, share that with, with anybody. That's, that's really their time. Because I, I always say that. You know, acting is like standing in front of a room, totally naked and turning around very slowly. And mm-hmm. it's something that that's really what that's all about. And I think it's a situation where, to me, I, I want the actors to feel comfortable in that respect.
4: Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I would also add just every note that you give, make sure you understand why you're giving that note, what the motivation is of that note. You, you can't, you don't want to ask somebody to stand somewhere just because it's better lighting. You need to, uh, Come to them with the, it, the purpose of the character and the story. And if you connect with them on that level, they'll respect, respect that. And the other thing is to be prepared, really understand what it is that you want and need. And that will give them the confidence to, to listen to you. Um, and also make sure you listen to them. It is so important. I think when you first get to set and you're doing rehearsals and everything, don't ever give a note until you've seen what the actors bring to the table. They've been at home, they've been rehearsing, they've been practicing. Let them show you what they're going to bring. It might surprise you and it might be completely different from what you planned and it's better. But it's so important that they are seen and, and heard because as David said, that they're, they're very. it's very exposing for them and they want to feel safe and protected and, and heard. I
1: love that. Um, my-
5: yeah, I would also, one other thing I would say, also, give the actors um, a couple of takes to, to find it. Um, maybe don't rush in right away, giving notes, uh, because also you know when it's seven o'clock in the morning and you're directing comedy. Nothing's funny at seven a.m. So you want to give people a chance to warm up. And also, I think um, you. I think it's very important to the actors to, to know that you understand the show. You've watched the show. You've seen episodes, and and you're invested in the show, so you can. You can even refer back to, you know, the thing you did in season two, episode three, where you said blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, that, that gives them a comfort factor to know that that you know the show. You just have some guy in there trying to get a check.
2: I, I think that's very important. Quick, and I'll just say that it's also important to dig, dig into their background and tell them something that not anyone else would tell them. Uh, I was working with Jonathan Price and I had to meet Jonathan Price. He's a, he's a tremendous actor. And we sat down and what can I say to be different? And I said, Jonathan, I must tell you, I think you're the, the greatest listener I've ever, I've ever watched as an actor. And I talked about the Glenn Reagan Ross scene where Al Pacino's at the bar, talked to him about his, this, this, just totally talking to him and talking, talking, talking. And Jonathan's just looking at him. And the minute I hit him on that moment and touched him on that moment, from that on, he was like totally cool, totally relaxed. And that's a very important thing as well. To, to really do that, because all actors again want to be directed, and if they respect you, then you know we, I was even getting gave Jonathan Price a line reading for a line once after I'd gotten normal well on He was totally cool.
1: Great. so now I, I want to get towards the end here. And I'm just wondering, and I really am wondering this, and I hope you'll tell me as genuinely as you can, how are you keeping hope alive? It's so easy to despair right now. I mean, it's so if you actually are a Twitter follower like I am, and, you know, I've just started to block and mute, block and mute as I go through because I can't take so much negativity. And I've reduced the news to a certain amount of time per day. We sit down and watch it with the kids, um, watch Anderson Cooper and, and, and talk about what we've seen. But how do you keep hope alive in a time like this? I mean, we're not directing. We're not doing what we love. What is your strategy? I mean, what what do you do both physically and emotionally to keep hope alive? I vote. <laughs> yeah. But what are you doing today, is what I mean. yes, we all must do, but today. <laughs> today. Well, I would so am yeah, finding I mean, something... It, so Hang all right, let's go with Jessica first. Yeah. So. We're just going
3: to say, I, you know, I'm finding things to... Uh, Projects, things to—I'm just trying to continue to work. And you know how it is when we're directing and we're sort of overwhelmed by schedule and everything we have to do. And we think about those things. Oh, if I only had time to work on that thing. So I'm working on those on those things. And um, and again, it's hard. You've got to find something that is really going to matter to you and take up that focus because it's so easy to get distracted by the constant barrage of everything that matters out there that we
2: can't control. So, um, so yeah. Just. David, what, you, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say that I think it's important to do something you haven't done before. Learn something else. Practice something else. Write your own perspective, your own horizons. Mm. Um, there's lots of things I've been doing for myself and things I've never done before. And just It is a simple quest. Is I was dying watching MSNBC every night. So my, my girlfriend got me into watching South Park. I'm now an aficionado. And Friends, which are two shows I never watched. Mm -hmm. But it's something I saw a different perspective in these shows and why people like them, and it helped. I think it's broadening out my my perspective. Michelle or Ken, how are you keeping hope alive?
5: Well, I'm. um, I'm again trying different things, doing different things that I never thought I would be into. Um, My wife and I are kind of into homesteading now, where we're we started a garden, and so now we're eating vegetables from the garden. And um, and uh, also we're talking about getting chickens and and having, having <laughs> eggs. And wow. stuff. I'm
1: not going <laughs> to go that far. Well,
5: <laughs> right. some yeah.
3: chickens and, uh, <laughs> get some and get some
5: But um, so we're just trying to live a little bit more natural and just know that you know that you know times could get tougher, but um, we will survive. And and I think we just have to really look out for ourselves and just go back to a simpler way of life. And so that's what we've kind of been doing lately. Michelle?
4: Um, I'm on in post, uh, and I'm working very long days from home remotely in and, and post. That's so keeping me very busy right now. Uh, and something I've noticed, I'm, I'm on Zoom for hours and hours a day with different people, whether it's sound mixers or color timers or actors who are, are doing ADR from their closets at home. And I'm getting to have conversations with these people that I would never have. We'd come in, we'd focus on work and we'd leave. And we're going to each other's homes. And, uh, I'm finding that once in a while we'll get on a ADR session with an actor and they need to talk. They, they've been stuck by themselves for two months and they need a conversation. And we just stop all the work and we'll sit and we'll talk on Zoom for an hour. And I think it's it's just uh realizing for me right now that yes, we have our schedule and we have this pressure to get the show done. Um, but that's just one small tiny thing. That that seeing human beings uh, caring about each other uh and stopping to have those moments and those conversations is is really important. And I think that a lot of those conversations we're talking about the future, what we're going to look forward to the future, and that always in in a positive way, and I think that that's always helpful and and fun and to kind of dream together about what we'll do this when or that and and that's that's super exciting and it's also we're talking about what's happening right now and we're having these really interesting powerful conversations about the horrific state of our country. And I think these feelings and these emotions and these conversations are gonna affect the stories that we tell in, in the future. So remembering our experiences at this time, I think are just as important as, as looking the future positively for, for new stories that we can tell.
1: I do love that. And as I've been telling the boys here in Casa Subarcal, um we've been here before. I mean, not exactly in this situation, but some of us who are ancient have been through the 60s and the revolution and the assassination of King and Robert Kennedy. And we got around that and we built really a movement on all of those horrible times and those problems. And we've been specifically here in LA with the the riots after Rodney King. And we've gotten through that and we've gotten a different kind of mayor and a different kind of governor and different kind of guidance. But this is going to be a tough one. But I think focusing on the potential is the way to go. Focusing on the pendulum swinging back because the pendulum keeps swinging, you know, from one way to the other. That's how Barack became president. It was a swing of the pendulum. It's going to swing back. And I do believe there is reason for us to hope that the world will be better and to focus on being a part of that. And just before I close, I want to thank the panelists who uh, have been fabulous for their time and their their wisdom and their hearts. We really appreciate it. So um, with that, Uh, Thank you all for joining us uh, at the second webinar. We hope we're helpful and please stay safe and keep hope alive. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Paris. Thank you, Paris. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Director's Cut. Past episodes are available wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.